Welcome to another exciting episode of the Religious Studies Project's Discourse series, where we take a critical religious studies eye to some contemporary news items that might be related to topics of interest to you. Um, I'm Chris Carter, one of the co-founders of the RSP, um, so hopefully I'll be fairly familiar to some of you. Um, I'm a research fellow at the University of Edinburgh, um, working in all things, quote, non-religious, unquote, take from that what you will. And I'm joined today um, by two uh, international uh, representatives. We've got uh, Sierra Lawson. Hi there. Um, Do you want to introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. Hi, um, I'm Sierra Lawson. I'm a PhD student at University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, and I'm studying uh, multiple things, but mostly the formation of identity within the religion and culture track. Fantastic. Um, you, you're bizarrely quite, I feel like I know you because you sort of, uh, you're, you were part of the sort of Alabama crew, if I remember correctly. And I think you're, you've come mm-hmm. up quite a bit um, in that social media world, but we've never actually crossed paths. Yeah, um, I uh, I did my master's at Alabama. I just finished in the spring. So I'm part of that crew, but um, if you're if you're going to San Diego in the next few weeks, could meet you there. <laughs> oh yeah, and we'll be talking about that very shortly. Yeah. Um, and then we've also got I'm um, joining us from Belgium, um, I believe, uh, Susanna yeah. Crockford, who's been on the RSP before talking about eco spirituality and gender. But uh, if you want to reintroduce yourself, Susanna, for our listeners, sure. Okay. Um. Yeah. So my name's uh, Susanna. Crockford, and I'm a postdoctoral researcher at Ghent University in Belgium, where I research uh, mostly millenarianism and climate change. Fantastic. Uh, so um, we've got a lot to get through now, um, and we may not get through it all, and we may end up talking about completely different stuff, and that's okay. Uh, but Sierra, I think uh, you're hopefully going to kick us off with um, some stuff that's been going down in the uh, college football world. Yeah, so um, I don't know how familiar you two are with college football in the United States, but it, it is basically a religion um, for some people, <laughs> quote unquote religion. You can't see me making the quotation marks, but basically um, President Trump and a few other people were planning on going to this huge game between University of Alabama and Louisiana State this weekend. And ahead of that, um, the student government at University of Alabama released this statement saying that there would be consequences for um, disruptive behavior. And following that announcement, they sent out a second announcement that said, um, you know, after a little bit of pushback about, are you violating First Amendment rights of students? They sent out a second announcement that said, you know, this first announcement erroneously assigned a political context to what are just our normal standards for behavior. Um, And I guess that got me thinking about discourse because I feel like any standards for behavior are probably somewhat political. So what does it mean to say uh, the former statement was, you know, falsely assigning Mm -hmm. a political context by, you know what I'm saying? So um, and people did protest. So uh, I guess they weren't too afraid of losing their tickets for the rest of the season. But I don't know. I thought. This was a good example of uh, discourse working in strategic ways, as it always does. 
Absolutely. So yes, there's that kind of demarcation of um yeah, what what is political, what's not political. Obviously, the announcement itself was prompted by a context and they're not making that announcement for every single game, I presume. Um no. Yeah. Right. So I guess President Trump had been booed at two other um kind of sports type events in the preceding weeks. And so it was a little bit of that, but it's also a little bit of, yes, this, this is not the normal announcement that comes out before every game. What I found really interesting about this story was that after you had the game and Alabama lost was that it was all over Twitter, this like hashtag, like ETTD, everything Trump touches dies. Like it almost became superstition, mm. superstition. They like, they, they, you know, they banned protests and then took it back. And somehow that kind of undermined the performance of the team. And I felt like there was something very, yeah. Cause you know, there's all these weird sports rules, not rules, but like superstitions, you could call them like with scare quotes that people make up about sports. Like when your team wins, you have to sit in exactly the same place. And mm-hmm. it just seemed to me that this became one of those things <laughs> that it was almost like he was a curse on them. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely so many, I guess we could call them taboos, maybe Mm. in sports about, like, if you have a lucky pair of socks, then you don't wash your socks, because, you know, then it's gonna, you're gonna lose the next game. So that that that's an interesting way to think about it. Yeah, I'm definitely pretty upset about (laughs) the loss this weekend. Um, But I have seen that too, people saying that, you know, the only reason that this happened is because of this disturbance in the equilibrium of Alabama's supremacy in football by Trump. Um, I just think it's interesting how universities like seem to um, navigate the ways in which they control their students through types of announcements like this um, while still being sort of this like faceless entity that just, you know, assumes that, people are buying into this idea that there's always been standards for behavior and we're just reasserting them, even though the boundaries for them are constantly being redrawn according to uh, contemporary yeah, interests. And it, kind of, it also made me think about how it's this kind of claim to make sports a politics-free zone that you hear quite often. It came up with the Deadspin story, mm. if you heard about that, that the, the new owners of the, the web uh the blog uh deadspin wanted them to stick to sports and i kind of feel like there's the same animus with this like don't mix politics and sports we want to kind of purify sports as this domain that's separate from anything political but the president is there so you can't really claim that politics isn't involved yeah yeah and and the coach for alabama is known pretty much as the most powerful democrat in alabama which comes as yeah, it comes as a huge shock to people because, you know, A, he's not in a, you know, uh, form, like very formal political position. But for people in the United States and especially in that in the state of Alabama, like that is you, you can't um, completely conceive of politics and sports as um, yeah. isolated entities, mm. you know. It, they're never they're never unrelated. Exactly. Um, and just like um I mean Craig Martin I'm sure many others have made this point as well, but Craig Martin, I think, made it very succinctly in his masking hegemony that we have the, again, he was talking about religion and politics, which we're just about to get to, but this whole notion that you can separate 
whatever religion is out from the political and have a secular political sphere is, is ridiculous. Like you wouldn't expect any politician to act, you know, they're individuals, right? And if part of their identification is related to what we might call religion, how on earth are they meant to separate that out from all their actions? Just the same as with sport as well. The idea that it could be bracketed off as like separate from some other sphere, which is apparently political. And that just negates the fact that everything is political, um, especially sports. <laughs> yeah. Cause they're, they don't tell you explicitly in this email what counts as a disruption mm-hmm. too. So it's kind of, yeah, it's that masking that the obfuscation of the fact that there is a political um, interest in defining that. And, and there's reason why they don't, probably tell you explicitly what what they're imagining um yeah craig martin definitely does a good a great job at that yeah it allows unspoken norms to just to, to creep in and to be utilized um ad hoc when wanted um but um that, that's a probably a good point for us to segue to um one of the stories Susanna's brought to the table today um, I'm sure we've all heard about Trump's current spiritual advisor. I mean, if that's not an entanglement of religion and politics, I don't know why it is. Um, so what's the context here? Yeah, so the spiritual advisor is called Paula White, and she's quite controversial in um, uh, American Christianity and Protestantism more widely because she practices uh, something called prosperity gospel, which very briefly is this idea that God wants you to be rich so one being wealthy is not a bad thing you can throw out all that camel in the eye of the needle stuff and the other thing is if you are rich then that shows that you have been blessed by god so you can see how this might appeal to someone like donald trump and she for a long time was associated with him and now she's been given an official white house position i believe it's in the office of i'm not can't remember now that's it Faith and Opportunity Initiative. And one of the things that she has tasked herself to do is uh, cast out demons who might be opposing tr- uh, Trump and kind of uh, holding back his re-election through what she calls sorcery. Right. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> presumably, so this is ta- taxpayers' money is paying for this? You know, I'm not sure if it's a paid position or not. You would kind of hope that she wouldn't need a paid White House position, given the fact that she already has a megachurch and huge amounts of money, um, given her position in prosperity. All these prosperity mm-hmm. gospel preachers, often they, they have ridiculous amounts of money in these ridiculous mansions. Um, but what I find really interesting about this is just how how I feel like in places in Europe, you would never have this level of political entanglement with a religious preacher, um, despite the fact that we have, um, you know, states that are, you know, in England, the queen is the, the head of the church and the head of the state. And, you know, in Belgium, it's kind of a similar setup with the Catholic church. It's kind of entangled with the state. But at the same time, we don't have our high politicians with these with preachers who are talking about casting out demons. I just feel like that that would never be done. But in America, where you have this established uh, separation of church and faith, 
you then also have this this kind of connection with religion in a much more obvious way. Um, and there's a really good article in uh, Religious Digest about how Nixon did this as well, right around uh, in, when he started getting impeached. And the, the suggestion in this article was that it was a ploy that they were using religion for political purposes in order to distract people and to keep certain religious groups on side. And that the God Bless America came from Nixon's uh, speeches around the, the time of impeachment. And that that's what Trump is doing here with Paula White. In a way, he's trying to kind of keep the, the evangelicals on side by having this very kind of obvious flamboyant figure who's talking, you know, really, really kind of obvious, but also really um, to some people, alienating religious discourse. You know, a lot of people, if they hear talking talk about, you know, that the enemies are demons, they're going to be quite turned off by this. But certain groups, it's like exactly what they want to hear. So he's really pitching to a certain constituency and doesn't care about the others at all. It also, um, just in the article you sent, yeah. there's a quote from a professor at Duke Divinity, Kate Kate Bowler, who, which Duke Divinity is right up, right up the road from where I am, um, mm. uh, but saying that she would have never thought that this would have been a pairing so similar to, to Billy Graham and Richard Nixon. Um, and just, I think, I think that's a really interesting way to unpack it, thinking about when one group of people's interests are so obviously um, beneficial to a president's agenda that they completely cater to those interests and don't, it, it doesn't matter who else they're alienating because that's the group that they're targeting or that's the group yeah. that has enough majority that it doesn't matter what the rest are thinking. Exactly. And of course we wouldn't want to make any assumptions about Trump's um, personal inner spiritual or religious life, whatever we might call that. <laughs> um, but we can certainly see the effects here. And I think uh, Susanna, your point about how, um, distraction is probably playing quite a part. I mean, anyone in my unkind view who who is already uh, probably supporting Trump probably won't be turned off by this, but it may well turn on some others. I think people um, on the left um, and who might have more of a problem with this, uh, he's not trying to appeal to them anyway. So it's serving a, a very real political purpose, regardless of um, the sort of authenticity in in scare quotes of his uh, engagement. Yeah, and it was one of the things that came up when he was first uh, running for the nomination was there was a lot of scepticism, at least in the press, about Trump's ability to appeal to evangelicals because he's been divorced. Uh, you know, he can't name correctly books of the Bible. He's not exactly a man of strong faith in an overt way. And yet he has kept their support and he does do these displays of kind of bringing in people like Paula White and bringing other kind of very high profile evangelicals close, um, like Mike Huckabee. And obviously his daughter was his uh, spokesperson for a while, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. So he he's very canny, at least in kind of knowing who is on his side. And what's more surprising is that the evangelicals on the other side, at least white evangelicals, this is, they, they you know, they say it's. It's all about what he's doing, not who he is, which is almost a complete reverse of the attitude towards any of the previous Democratic presidents. You know, there was this whole idea of a moral majority. 
Um, and, and Trump doesn't live up to this at all, but it's okay because he's doing what they want on things like abortion and conservative judges, which makes it seem very transactional. Like it's very convenient. Yes. Uh, and it's uh, certainly a very interesting case study uh, to have it playing out. So, uh, publicly, um, just in the way that everything Trump does, it plays out so publicly. <laughs> yeah, I think the article called it an evangelical gumbo, just bringing together all these different parts. Because um, even though, if you look at them separately, and you don't have the figure of Trump, they may not seem like they fit together. But then once you have that figure in there, it's like, pretty obvious what the mm. interests are. Or maybe not obvious, but could be could be inferred <laughs> um so sticking with i suppose um trump in, in a way um susanna also had a story about uh something that's been happening to do with um people dying at the border if i'm correct yeah so it's it's actually about um day of the dead um dia de muertos which is uh, it's a, it's a, originally an indigenous Mexican celebration or commemoration of the souls of all who have died, but it's celebrated especially in the southwest of the U.S. and it, it's much more popular in other parts of northern Mexico now that it wasn't say fifty to sixty years ago. So it's it's a celebration that's become a lot more prominent in its iconography. is now known quite well with the, the the white sugar skulls with the the kind of flowers painted on and the red flowers. Um, but what they did this year for the House, um, it's the Congressional House Hispanic Caucus. They always make an altar for Day of the Dead because it's part of their, it's part of their culture and it's part of what they do uh, on this particular day. But this year they made an altar in the state capitol and they dedicated it specifically to uh, migrants who have died in U.S. custody at the border which I think is quite a strong statement while at the same time uh, choosing to use it in this kind of ritualized fashion. So it's, it doesn't seem like they're making a political protest about this, but at the same time they are. So I think it's actually a way of combining religion and politics that's actually quite, uh, quite clever, but also quite meaningful. And it makes a really strong statement about their position to this particular situation at the border which is very well it's brutal quite frankly i think a lot of the times the way that the current administration defends some of the things that are going on at the border is they make the border seem as though it's like uh, a technology without agents or they kind of they displace what's going on to things that are do not have human agents so they say um you know this person didn't die because of anyone who's involved here it's because of the desert or like all of these different factors that seemingly can't be um, located in a political context but i think that this response to what's going on really puts forward um not only the consequences of what's happening here but also just making it linked back to um human beings and suffering rather than kind of muddling the conversation um, as certain figures do here and making it seem as though it, it couldn't be any other way, if that makes sense. I'm yeah, not sure. it's like it rehumanizes it by literally putting the human faces. Right. Like, how could you possibly deny that this is something that's happening when you have to uh, reckon yeah. with it? In Especially this way? when so many of them are children as well. Right. Hmm. 
Exactly. But it, 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 as again was mentioned just now, um, it, it's a very subversive, I suppose, use of, you know, use of religion um, to make a political point in, in a way that probably can't be um, because as, um, as was just said, how, how the border is constructed as an impersonal thing around the, the sacred land of the, the U S it's performing this vital function. It's protecting us, etc. Um, so this is a way that people can make a very, very political and humanizing statement whilst also it being to the side and also, you, it'd be very difficult for anyone to criticize at the same time. Um, so it, it, it allows the point to be made in a forum, um, which is sort of a, above the criticism that may come at it, where it made in a more um, traditionally political context. Yeah, I think this because they've done it in a ritual way, it kind of is, defends them from ha- being attacked as being too political about it. But, and I also think there's something important about making a statement that mm-hmm. that this is a, a Mexican tradition because that border wall goes straight through land that was Mexico and that before that was the land of the indigenous people and various spaces in that land are still sacred to those people, but they can't access it because of the militarized border that now stands there. So in a way, I think it's trying to claim that back for those people. Right. And it's also such a stunning, um, I'm looking at the image with that one article. It's a stunning image when it's, like you said, so many young people, because traditionally in Dia de los Muertos, you're looking at um, family members and perhaps like some young people, but not really to this extent where it's obviously um, causing harm to certain bodies more than, um, like it's just a very visceral um, image, I think. Or it can evoke a visceral response. Yeah, and it's also worth. I wasn't going to mention this, but but tying into to to that sort of memorialization and the the link between the, the state and religion. So we're we're recording this um, on um, what in some contexts is known as Armistice Day or Remembrance Day or Veterans Day, um, and. Uh, Certainly, in my UK context, I was wearing one of my other hats as a as a choral singer at the weekend, and there was a remembrance service, and all the the the, the talk was quite naturally about all you know all the millions of people who died in the world wars and so on. There was an act of remembrance, which was then immediately followed by the mm. national anthem. Which in a UK context involves deities and heads of state being sung about. So it, it takes what is a moment of remembrance and, you know, never forget, let this never happen again, and then turns it into, and now let's all reassert our loyalty to the nation state. Um, and also a lot of the discourse surrounding it was about how all these men and women were fighting for freedom and justice and their fellow human, which, uh, you know, also makes me quite uncomfortable because whilst I do think that uh, there was certainly a, a good outcome to those conflicts um, to, to construct a narrative that everyone who was involved was doing it out of some sort of wonderful altruism for the human race is, uh, it is taking um, 
memorialization to a whole new level. Yeah, I felt like um, it was quite patriotic this year. There was a video of a, I think it was a Spitfire or some kind of like World War II bomber, literally kind of bombing poppies over the, the white cliffs of Dover. And I was like, that is probably the most kind of British patriotic thing I've ever seen. Like it has all of these symbols just stuffed together in one go. And it, yeah, it also makes me feel quite uncomfortable. Exactly. Yeah. Right, just so removed from the context yeah. of what that technology was. <laughs> like that was the thing that was actually causing those people who were commemorating to die. You know, <laughs> it was weird. We have that certainly in, in the United States with, you know, um, all kinds of displays of military at malls or different places like that that always make me wonder, but who was, who was, on the other end of that barrel, I guess I have to yeah. I have to question sometimes. And the, the sacred symbol of the the poppy as well. He can be made to feel very very uncomfortable if you're not one of the people who decide to uh, to buy into that particular symbol. It's just one of those national moments that uh, yeah, there's a lot of symbolism happening all at the same time. Um, so. This this might well end up being the final thing we get to talk about, but we've just been talking about um, the policing of borders and um, some news that happened sort of in our field of study um, over the past few days was the American Academy of Religion and Society of Biblical Literature, who are having their conference in a couple of weeks, um, sort of dropped this announcement about QR code is going to be on all of the delegates' um, passes, um, notionally an attempt to, uh, to to stamp out fraud from all the uh, all the many people who must be ripping off the uh, the associations by by attending things that they're not meant to be attending or sneaking into sessions and things like that. Um, and there was uh, quite an uproar on uh, largely on social media, but I'm sure it happened in in other places as well, where people kicked up about um, concerns to do with surveillance, uh, lack of trust, uh, potential even racial profiling that's happened uh, in other contexts. Um, but the most cogent argument uh, that I could see as well was about. Um, how it seemed to be really targeting um, people at the the bottom of the academic food chain um, by an organization that arguably um, has the resources to to cope with uh, a slight bit of uh, people who might be said to be taking advantage, but who are you know sort of benefiting from the the, the established position of other delegates. Um, you're going to be attending uh, Sierra the the AAR, and what did you have to make of it? Um, I think, you know, if this announcement had been made when the choice was made, because I'm assuming, you know, certain steps go into planning this, um, perhaps if the announcement was made when the decision was made, then that would have been at a time where uh, registration prices were more feasible for graduate students or contingent faculty. But the fact that it was the announcement wasn't made until a few weeks before the conference when prices are in the 300s in US dollars it does uh it's hard not to read that in some ways as punching down mm. um i mean 
I I'm hesitant to make comments, but I also I I do think it's for people who do critical thinking for a living um, to make that kind of decision and publicly announce that or not publicly privately and emails announce that um, in the ways that they did shows quite a bit of um, I don't it's it's hard yeah. <laughs> it's hard to it, it, yeah fully it, it could I have think. been handled better let's put it that way perhaps um, and it is worth noting that yeah. um, following this uh, sort of kickback uh, public kickback, um, largely, and the organizations decided to to abandon the what was meant to be a one year trial, and have you know said that they they right, right. they understand the concerns raised and stuff. So that it's sort of a victory in a sense for um, uh, people power, um, and we'll we'll see what happens going forward. But yeah, um, so it, it's maybe a nice case study in in. Uh, an organization um, making a decision for perhaps justifiable reasons, but um, thinking about the way that they communicate that, um, thinking about the context in which they communicate that, but also um, to sort of, I guess, grassroots mobilization and and it was effective and and who knows what will happen in the future, but it was just an interesting um event to watch playing out in my feeds <laughs> right yeah it, i was honestly surprised I, I had hoped that the decision would be rescinded but um i kind of expected them to be harder on that decision so i'm i'm happy to see it's changed um i think it'll make for a a better experience at the arsbl mm. this year and it's again um I have never yet attended, um, and I, I gather it's uh, it's quite a different affair to some of the, you know, conferences I attend tend to be in the the hundreds, uh, not <laughs> thousands. So, and the logistics of that are, are going to be yeah, quite it's also quite held different. In hotels rather than say like the EASR and the BASR, they're in universities, and who else is going to be there? But the big American conferences, as far as I'm aware, they're in all these different hotels. So the reasoning I read was that it was about security and mm-hmm. making sure that, yes, you know, that there weren't people coming in who weren't supposed to. Not so much grad students, but, you know, there were mentions of like a bomb threat a few years ago at Atlanta and that people might be targeted because they're wearing overt religious symbols. So that was their rationale. And yeah, I don't it doesn't seem particularly mm-hmm. necessary to me, but I guess that's where they were coming from. But that's maybe an interesting way for us to wrap up because it brings us kind of right back to the start of the discussion in that here we have, um, I guess, our area of academic study exists mm-hmm. within a political context. Um, and so um, although we in scare quotes might like to consider what we're doing as being in some way um, above or detached from um, what's happening in, in the sort of wider societies of which we're part. Um, Even things like how we organize our um, annual meetings uh, are are happening within a very real context and, and can't be divorced from that because um, considerations that come from outside 
um, our area of study and end up impacting upon it, whether it's uh, broader general public concerns about security to um, global events um, to perceptions even of there being a conference with the word religion attached to it happening in a place can then raise a whole bunch of ripples that happen in the, the, the surrounding context that then have to be taken into consideration. Well, we've uh, we've only got through four of our six stories there, but um, we're, we're out of time. Um, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. And um, hopefully you've enjoyed yourselves and hopefully the listeners have enjoyed it and we'll maybe come back for more another time. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. The Religious Studies Project is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation charity number, SC047750. Brought to you by editors Brianne Fallon and David McConaughey and founding editors Chris Cotter, that's me, and David Robertson, that's him. Our features are edited by Rebecca Barrett-Fox with marketing managed by Benjamin Marcus. Our Opportunities Digest managed by Ella Bach, podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock and social media managed by Ray Radford. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our Amazon.com co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com backslash project rs and you can find us on facebook twitter youtube itunes and other portals thanks for listening google plus <laughs> it doesn't exist anymore nope